before we get into our series on hospitality, uh, I wanted to introduce you to James Raymond, and the, the reason is twofold. One, because the ministry that he has going would be a direct application of the things we've been learning. If you were to get involved here, um, it would be an expression of God's heart as we've seen in hospitality. And two, uh, because I wanted to give you concrete and tangible um, illustrations of what we've been talking about. And so let's, let's welcome up James and he can introduce himself and his ministry. Morning guys. Um, my name is James Raymond. I've been living in Seattle for um, seven years now, and I, and I run the Al-Maida Initiative. Um, I'm, I'm sure all of you are aware of the awful things that have happened in New Zealand in the last couple of days. Um, 50 people have been, have been killed. Um, 50 Muslims ha have been killed. And um, unfortunately, this is, this is simply um, one in a number of tragedies we've seen unfold in regards to Islam and its interaction with the world and the world's interaction with Islam over the last years. I mean, starting with, you know, 9-11, uh, with lots of terrorist attacks, lots of retaliations, this is um, simply one in a string of awful events. And Jesus, in Luke 13, kind of explains that these events are there to kind of wake us up so that we'd um, repent of our sin, that we'd pay more attention to who, who God is um, and, you know, be aware of what's really happening because ultimately everyone dies, everyone is going to have to stand before God eventually and seeing things in the world makes us um, more tuned in to what's, what life is, life is really about. Um, so I remember starting to learn about Islam myself when I, after 9-11 and really realizing that Islam is the second largest worldview in existence. Right? It's the largest non-Christian worldview on the planet. Um, there, a quarter of the world's population are Muslims and uh, there's 150,000 Muslims in the greater Seattle area. Um, so about six years ago, I, I found myself in a place where um, I, I gained the conviction that I should figure out uh, what Islam is and who my Muslim neighbors are. Um, so I, I read through some of the source materials and just became very convicted it was a very academic exercise. So I decided to try and get out of my Christian bubble and, and meet some of my neighbors. Uh, so I decided to check out the Muslim Student Association at the University of Washington. I walked in very awkwardly partway through one of the meetings and the door was right behind the speaker and everybody saw me come in. Um, but one guy waved me over, offered me a seat, I, I went back, and I kept going back, and I've been going now for six years. I, I'm the longest attending member of the Muslim Student Association at the University of Washington. Um, and I didn't go to stir up any trouble, just to listen, learn, make friends, and then be able to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people where we talk about our, what we believe, we talk about the gospel. And I, I did this just for an hour after work each week, and then um, after a couple years of doing that, I was invited to an interfaith event on campus, and typically interfaith events end up being pretty shallow, but by the grace of God, this one had a terrible turnout. It ended up being me and five Muslims in a room for an hour and a half. So instead of this planned curriculum of how do we all be Americans together when, you know, I'm foreign, um, three of them were foreign, 
there were only two Americans in the room. They just started asking me questions like, how can you believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time? And how can you trust the Bible is accurate after all this time? And um, after chewing through those, a girl called Zara said, you know, I really want to go to church sometime, but my Christian friend never invites me. So I said, what? My wife and I go, come with us. In fact, you guys should all come, make it like an interfaith field trip. And they were like, oh yeah, sounds good. I was honestly expecting nothing to happen. Um, But three days later, the official Muslim Student Association Facebook page sent out an invitation inviting um, all of their people to go to church. They said, guess what happens on Sunday, guys? Church. Our very own James Raymond invited us to go to his church with him. Let's all go. It's a great opportunity to learn. Um, We'll get lunch afterwards. Parking will be validated. So, um, you know, and 50 people RSVP'd to this event. Now, this is a college RSVP, which doesn't mean anything in real life, but we had 13 people show up that Sunday um, and just had great conversations with them. So that led to me being on staff um, with crew for three years, where I was able to interact with a lot more Muslims. Um, but I gained the conviction that th- this opportunity is, is much, much bigger. Um, there's 150,000 Muslims in the greater Seattle area, and our hope as the Almeida Initiative is that each of them would be known as an individual by a Christian that loves them and is, is praying for them. Um, and a, a lot of this, um, a lot of our model of this um, comes from one specific story where I was um, greeting outside church one Sunday, and I saw a woman leaving who I didn't recognize, and I said, hey, I don't think we've met yet. She said, what? You and I, we don't know each other. What? We've never met before. She said, no, this is my first time here. I said, great, what brings you here? She said, I grew up Muslim, decided I didn't believe that anymore, tried being nothing, that felt empty, so now I'm trying this. Like, great, where are you from? Like, Saudi Arabia. Like, great, which city? She said, you wouldn't have heard of it. I said, try me. I said, um, she said, it's a, it's a small town called Safwa. I said, I know where that is. I have a friend called Ali Amiri al-Safwani, which means from Safwa, right? She's like, yes, which means you probably go as a Shia Muslim, right? And she's like, how the hell did you know that? Um, and she went from like really not wanting to talk to me to really, really, really wanting to talk to me um, because... Um, I, you know, I knew where her hometown was. So we got coffee that Friday, and the place she was at is she liked the sort of general vibe of Christianity, but still thought um, Islam made more sense, because in her mind, the Bible had ended before Jesus was ever on the cross, um, and, and then the Quran comes along and finishes a story by saying God rescued him from that situation. So I just read the last three chapters of Matthew with her, and she said, oh, it does say he died and rose from the dead, but practically what difference does that actually make? said, okay, in the Islamic sense of things, Allah loved Jesus so much that he rescued him from the cross. In the biblical version of things, God loved you so much that he put Jesus on the cross. So if you trust him, you can know with certainty that you're loved and forgiven. She said, that makes so much sense to me. I believe that. And she's been rolling with us ever since. Um, And she wanted to find a way to reach out to the, you know, her local sort of Saudi community without having to sort of explain too much of it herself. So we put together a dinner at our church, and we had 35 Muslims and 35 Christians um, for dinner at downtown Cornerstone, 
and just had really, really good conversations with people. Um, met another Saudi who'd secretly become a Christian about a year earlier there, and then another guy who came, professed faith a couple of weeks later, um, and just gained credibility with the community. So what the Almeida Initiative does is we, we do training, right? We want to we want to equip people. Um, we want to educate people. We want to help them understand what Islam is as a worldview and who Muslims are as people. And then we want to give you tools to engage the Muslims around you um, and, get, and help, help you kind of get over the fear of meeting your Muslim neighbors, help you feel equipped in what to say, and provide some practical bridges to do that. So if, if you're interested in learning more about engaging Islam um, in the Seattle area, you know, there's, there's uh, Seattle Central College walking distance from this spot, which has a Saudi student club. There's lots of opportunities all around the city. Um, if anyone's interested in engaging those, I'll be in the coffee area later um, with a sign-up, and we'll organize a training for, uh, for Calvary. Um, uh, this stuff is so much James's heart that we didn't find him. He found us. He just knew we were here and introduced himself um, about a year ago. And so, so I, I love his heart, I love his vision. I would love for any of you who have uh, people at work or in the apartment down the hall uh, or in, in the schools you're attending um, to take advantage of this opportunity. The last thing I ask James to do for us today is just to lead us as a church in prayer for the Muslim community in Christ Church, New Zealand. Um, and so let's just, let's just pray right now. Go ahead, James. Lord God, um, I ask you to be present in, in Christchurch, New Zealand right now, um, a city which um, is supposed to represent you by name. I ask that you would, that local churches would rise up, that would be, provide comfort and truth to the Muslim community there. Uh, I ask that um, death um, would have its intended effect that people would seek you more clearly through this that we wouldn't sim people wouldn't simply feel righteous because they're being persecuted but that they would honestly seek truth and they'd find it and that through this awful tragedy people would meet you that your name would be glorified and that people would be saved i ask that your church would reflect you well providing love and truth in this situation in jesus name i ask this amen After service, again, just follow the voice, uh, follow the accent, and you can sign up, uh, and we'll put together a training ad hoc uh, for all those who are interested. We're going to go ahead and get into our study this morning. Uh, we've been working through this series called Showing Hospitality, and in the midst of it, we've talked about loving the stranger, we've talked about eating with sinners. Uh, and this morning, we're going to talk about sharing with those in need, which is another facet of hospitality. And to do so, once again, we're going to look at uh, an episode in the gospel where we find Jesus at dinner. And so if you've got a Bible this morning, please open it up to Luke chapter 14. If you're in need of a Bible, you should find one right in front of you. There's an index uh, in the first few pages uh, the Gospel of Luke is in the New Testament, and you can use that index to find it. Again, we'll be in chapter 14.
Again here, we find Jesus at dinner, and like last week, his host uh, is not a tax collector like, uh, like Matthew uh, or someone on the outside of society, but here he's been invited to dinner by one of the Pharisees, one of these um, upper echelon of the Jewish religion who were devoted to keeping themselves pure and unstained. In fact, that's what the word Pharisee means. It means the separate ones, okay? And so <clears throat> probably in order to get front row seats to investigate and maybe even criticize Jesus, they've invited Jesus over for dinner. And as we've talked about, uh, Jesus is always open to an invitation. He goes to Matthew, the tax collector's house for dinner. Uh, here he goes to a Pharisee's dinner, despite the fact that at this point in Luke's gospel, they're already very much his opposition. They're very much his enemies. In fact, they're already beginning to plot a way to get rid of him, to put him to death. And yet he takes the uh, invitation. However, it's worth noticing that Jesus is very much Jesus wherever he goes for dinner. And so he's somewhat of a uh, confrontational guest. He, he sits in the party, he enjoys it, but in his conversation, basically the entirety of it is a critique of the host and the guests who are at the party. And so uh, it begins with a religious trap uh, where conveniently staged is a man with dropsy. Uh, in other words, he has a disability uh, and he's set up there by the Pharisees because it's the Sabbath with the hope that Jesus will make the wrong move and do a work on the Sabbath, specifically the work of healing this man in need. And Jesus, as he always does, uses that as a teaching opportunity. And then he speaks to the guests and he says, hey, when you come to a party, quit taking the best and most honorable seat. Quit sitting as close as you can to the host so everybody knows that you're in the inner circle. He says, instead, take the lowest seat. And he just points out, if that's the wrong seat for you, then what's the worst that will happen? The host will go, hey, why are you sitting all the way over there? I want you closer to me. And then he turns to the host and he critiques him about the guest list. He says, hey, when you planned this party, you did poorly. And then finally, um, a man speaks out at the dinner and he says, basically, how happy are all those who are in attendance, in attendance at the final feast? the one that God will throw for his people, uh, you know, at the consummation of all things, how blessed will be those who are attending, inferring what I'll suggest to you this morning, something obvious, that he sees himself on the guest list, right? How happy are people like me who are anticipating heaven is effectively what he's implying. And so then Jesus gives a parable about a feast, uh, about a guest list, uh, and as he does so, <coughs> basically... He once again challenges those in attendance and says, are you sure you really want the feast that God is offering? And so here, as we read this story, what I want you to notice is that these two pieces we're going to look at, first with Jesus' critique about the guest list, and then with this parable, parable about a future feast, I want you to notice that they intentionally run parallel. In fact, both times he's going to make a four-point list of the people who are in attendance. It's the poor, the blind, the cripple, and the lame. 
by Jesus using those both in his critique and in his uh, parable, he puts them parallel. He wants us to understand this all together. So let's read it together and then we'll pray, beginning here in verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray. Father, for the last few weeks, our prayer has been the same, that you would show us what true hospitality looks like, and in understanding it, not, not only would we understand our calling as Christians to love our neighbors, but also your heart. We are hospitable because you are a hospitable God. And the greater we understand the nature of our invitation to your table, the greater we will express that in, uh, in the way that we utilize our own table and our own home and our own goods, all of which are your good gift. And so we pray, Lord, that you would teach us, and I pray, Lord, that these truths, because they're so bald and simple this morning, that they would penetrate our hearts deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, see that this is in two parts, but the two parts operate as one. In fact, did you notice that Jesus promises a blessing for those who make their guest list based on need? He says, if you do this, if you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, you will be blessed. Clearly, that's what triggers this person to speak out and say, you know what's a real blessing? Those who will be eating bread in the kingdom of God. Okay. For the man who speaks up on that occasion, he pulls a pretty classic religious move, right? Forget about the needs of this world. Let's talk about the spiritual reality behind it. Forget about what happens here. Let's look beyond to the future. He thinks in this way, and Jesus responds clearly in telling this story and running parallel uh, by saying, actually, these two are very closely related. There's, there's a significant relationship between uh, how we handle our own home and table 
and what's going on in our heart, how we relate to God, and how, uh, how we can chart our own destinies as human beings. Now, there are a few details that we should unpack before we really get into this, and the first thing I want you to understand here is, uh, is in the circumstances, the story Jesus tells. And so there's been an invitation to a banquet, and then a servant goes out because the time for the feast is now ready. Remember that Jesus live, is living in a pre-watch world, okay? Uh, and so you, you set the feast date on the calendar. You invite people weeks, maybe even months in advance, depending on the quality uh, and the significance of the feast. But, <coughs> but the actual daily preparation of the feast, when it's all ready, when they're invited, that is a second invitation. And so what happens here is all of the pre-invited, pre-RSVP'd guests who days ago, maybe weeks ago, maybe even months ago said, yes, I'll be there. Now when the servant comes to their door and knocks and says, the feast is ready, uh, presents reasons not to come. Okay. One of them says, I can't come because I've just bought a piece of property and I need to be out there and see it today. The other says, I've bought 10, uh, 10 cow, 10 oxen, five yokes of oxen for work. And I need to go and test them. I need to make sure that they're good, that they're quality oxen. And the finally says, I just got married. I can't, I can't attend. Okay. Um, each and every one of them give excuses. And so the master has then uh, pre-slaughtered animals cooking in the oven food for many and no one in attendance. And so that presents the tension of it. And he, uh, he wants his table to be full. And for a somewhat intense reason. Look again at the last verse there, verse 24. He says, because I tell you none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Okay. He wants the table full so that there's no room for those who he originally invited to attend anymore. Okay. It's intense. It's inter interesting because uh, Luke's parables, almost all of them, these stories that Jesus tell to make significant points, almost all the ones Luke utilizes we don't find in Matthew or Mark or John. Uh, and on top of that, all of them involve controversial aspects. It's in Luke that Jesus takes a Samaritan, a despised people group living in the middle of Israel, and makes him the hero of the story. It's in Luke uh, that Jesus takes a servant who rips his boss off and makes him a good example of shrewd living, okay? Uh, over and over again, there's always some controversy, some intensity, uh, some danger in the parables of Jesus. Um, but here, what's going on, once again, <coughs> is that Jesus is connecting how we live out our daily lives and express hospitality and our expectation for what is to come. Basically, what prompts this parable again is a man who looks forward to this heavenly feast, to the consummation of all things, to fellowship with God. And I would suggest to you that in telling this parable, he asks two questions. One, if you aren't happy having these people in your home now, why would you be excited about being with them in heaven? In other words, he doesn't understand who it is who's going to cross the finish line and share the table with him. And two, if you aren't expressing that now, then do you really have a seat at the table? In fact, the, the symbolism of the parable is pretty simple, isn't it? 
Those who reject the invitation on the whole reflects these same Jewish people who sit around this table. Those who are acquainted with the promises of God have the invitation given through the prophets, through the Old Testament, through the expectation. But how do they treat Jesus? Jesus is here and he doesn't say the kingdom of God is coming. He says the kingdom of God has come. Jesus comes and he says the table is laid and the feast is happening. And so as he eats with tax collectors and sinners, he says those people are entering into the kingdom of God. They're encountering the king himself in Jesus Christ. And where are the Pharisees? With their arms crossed at a distance. Not entering in. Not enjoying the fellowship of the table. Even here, only is Jesus at this table because he's on trial. Okay. Look again with me. At Jesus' advice in verse 12, he says, uh, he said to the host, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. He says, making a guest list is dangerous. That's what that word lest implies, right? He says, the danger is if you invite your friends and your family and the wealthy and the people you know, they might actually invite you over to their house. Right? Now, I'm a pretty introverted person, so I read that fear a little bit different. But if you remove that element, what is the suggestion here? It's a strange one, isn't it? What's the big deal about being invited over to someone else's house for dinner? The danger here is not that that isn't a valuable consequence. It's that you're settling for something less. He isn't, uh, he isn't suggesting here that there's a risk in inviting the people you already know, the people you already enjoy, and even the people who could be of some benefit to you in the future, whether it's just in a return invitation or maybe even uh, you know, in the networking sense that we talk about uh, when we eat with people who might be good for our career. He's not necessarily denying those things, but he is recognizing that there is something greater a greater reward, a greater value in doing something entirely different. As is always the case, as C.S. Lewis said, the danger for us in human beings is not that we desire too much, but too little. That we would settle. Now, here again, verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind. I think the tendency we have with this text is to very quickly try and limit it, very quickly explain it away, make it easier to follow, because it is intense, is it not? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, invite them into your house, fill your table with them instead. You see, let's put together a couple of the pieces. The contrast here is not, well, I can't have those people over because they're too needy. Although that's a significant part of the paradigm, right? If you're going to bring a lame man to your table, he's going to have to be carried. If you're going to bring a blind man to your table, he's going to have to be led. If you bring a poor man to your table, then all of the cost of the meal, you're going to provide. And no, uh, at no time are you going to have a uh, a reciprocity, a reward directly for that. You're going to experience no social advantage, okay? Uh, and that gets us closer to what the issue is here. 
especially significant for Luke's audience, people who are living in the Roman world and are familiar with the Roman patron system, okay, where meals became a place to improve your social standing. Okay? And so patron relationships were one where someone in a lower strata of society uh, would be basically uh, adopted by someone in a higher strata. And there would be a tit-for-tat, a give-and-take relationship. Okay? Uh, part of the patron system uh, were the city benefactors who would build great works on the city's behalf and gain all the glory that comes with it, with their name on the library or on, uh, on the theater, those types of things, okay? And so that's really what's going on here. Um, the danger for us as human beings is that we would use our hospitality to benefit ourselves. Now, once again, I'm not just talking about here uh, turning your spare bedroom into an Airbnb, although that's a pretty easy illustration of this. And once again, Jesus isn't saying that you should never invite your friends or your family over for dinner. If you continue to read the story, okay, the early church is founded upon close relationships expressed at one another's tables. The church meets from house to house to house to house, but the idea here laid out in classic uh, Jewish idiom is don't only do this, but also consider, okay? Um, let me give you an illustration of what this looks like. And it's, it's, a, it's a crappy illustration because we don't really use our table in this way, okay? Most of the places where, the, where we express these things don't happen in our houses. They happen in restaurants. They happen in large banquet halls. Okay? Uh, but, but here's what it's like. Jesus would say, if you're the bouncer running the front door of the club, right, where the tendency and the propensity is to let the very attractive people in and the very wealthy people and the people who are going to hire table service, right, and be led into the private area to bring them up to the front of the line. He says, instead, go across the street where the homeless man is sitting and bring him to the front of the line, right? That's the contra-cultural uh, reality of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, determine your guest list, the priority of it, the first place of it, by need and not by benefit. I was talking with a businessman a few years ago, and he was, and still is, one of the most driven and ambitious and even successful people I know. He's quite a bit younger than me, and he's accomplished a whole lot more. And so we were talking about that, and this is what he said to me. He said, I've made it a practice to never be the smartest person in the room. Now, don't mistake what he's saying there. He's, it, that's not an expression of humility. It's an expression of ambition. He only wants to be in the room with those who can be of benefit to him. You see, one of the lessons that we learn here is effectively that our table, our homes, should be a primary place where we meet the needs of others. And I think that's really striking because uh, it is biblical. It is a reflection of uh, what God has done in Christ to be generous, okay? to take the money that you earn 
and employ it to the benefit of others, to send it overseas, to support organizations that are doing good works, uh, to, to give to somebody you meet on the street who has uh, front row needs, right? All of that's true. It's all good. But inviting them into your home is different, isn't it? It's significantly different. If we read this story and then we look at the great thousand-dollar-a-plate benefit dinners that the wealthy always often throw, you know, to meet a particular need, is that what Jesus is talking about? Does that meet what he's talking about here? It's different, isn't it? Because those benefit dinners come shoulder to shoulder with the upper echelon. They come with the glory and the pride of knowing that everyone who's there deserves to be so and is paid out of that deservation, out of that wealth to be present. You get to rub shoulders with celebrities and with the wealthy and be known as a benevolent person which might open up doors for other territories, okay? But what Jesus is talking about here doesn't have those benefits. It doesn't have those things. In fact, it localizes moving away from an idea of, uh, of problems just as problems to dealing with people as people, right? Do you see the difference there? One says the poor and the other says Joe. One says the disabled and the other says my friend Katie. Okay, do you see the difference there? In some ways, it's a lot smaller. Let's be obvious here. What Jesus is talking about here is not going to solve poverty, but that's not his agenda. His agenda is to love our neighbors, and as much as we can benefit the world at a distance, love always goes deeper. God didn't merely pay the check for our salvation at a distance. He didn't merely meet our needs or heal us at a distance. The gospel is reflected in our generosity, but God in Jesus Christ doesn't just meet our needs and leave us be. He brings us into his house. He invites us to the table. He makes us his friend and even part of his family. He adopts us. That's different, isn't it? It's personalized. It's greater. And so one of the things we see here is, is that localization, is that personalization. It reminds me of Paul's words to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians. He comes into Thessalonica knowing no, no one and seeking to do them good, specifically in telling them about what God has done in Jesus Christ and sharing the gospel. But as he's ministering to them, he says this, reflecting on his first week in Thessalonica. He says, um, <coughs> oh, let's turn there. I don't want to blow it. Uh, if you didn't know, all of the New Testament books that begin with T are right next to one another. So if you find Timothy or Titus, you're very close. First Thessalonians is the first one. So here he comes to meet a need a stranger in a strange town, and this is what he says happens in verse 8. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. 
not just to share the gospel and go away, but to give of himself, of his table, of his home. What Jesus suggests here is that the needs of those around us should incentivize us not merely to meet those needs, but to form our guest lists, to invite people into our homes, to give them a place to stay, to eat with them and get to know them and all of these things. This is a deeper, a truer hospitality and by nature, a scarier one, a harder one. And clearly here, when he talks about the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, he's not making some sort of a limited shape of who it is that we should invite. He's using the least of these as a broader category. This isn't about these specific needs, but need in general. Okay. And so this would also imply to the single mother, whose life is just chaos right now, to invite her and her child or children into your home is what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, those uh, who are living alone and recovering from some significant surgery, bringing them into your home and taking care of them, that is what we're talking about here. Okay? But it also extends further than we'd like to admit. And there's no getting around that. Jesus is provocative. And I don't want to take the sharp edge off that because it's, these are the words of Jesus himself. Now, when it comes to this type of hospitality, it's intriguing to me that the same excuses that are made in Jesus' parable are the things that are most likely to hinder us from living like this. Three of the guests are given as illustration, and the first, the first says, I have bought a parcel of land. It's his stuff that gets in the way. Now, to be fair, there's a difference here, right? Jesus says, when you invite people, and here, in the parable, he's saying, you've been invited to a feast. But I would suggest to you that these two are so closely related that we should recognize it for what it is. That the reason Jesus knows these people are excusing themselves from the final feast is the same excuses they're making that keep them from inviting the poor, the lame, the cripple, and the blind. The first part of here is property. And this is a mind-blowing and convicting reality of the human heart. It is not those who have the least who are the most prone against hospitality. It is those who have the most. Because we have stuff that matters to us more than the risk of sharing. I assume that most of us did not grow up with parents who maintained a formal living room. But your parents might have, and your grandparents probably did, and if you read American fiction at all, you'll encounter this all the time, right? This room where you're not allowed to play, where you're not allowed to glow, grow, uh, not allowed to go. It is just a room significantly for the nice guests, right? It's the guest towels. It's the special plates, right? It's this reality. It's, it's formalized in this way. Uh, <clears throat> you might have, you know, the, the carpet that is stain-prone, and so your house is not kid-friendly, right? There's so many ways that this can work out. Even recognizing how property 
and status go hand in hand. How many of us naturally, just culturally, seek as an ideal to live in the gated community in the nice part of town? Recognize that that is a choice to not neighbor your poor neighbors. And that, that gate operates not as something to keep your kids in, but very clearly to keep certain types of people out. When we look at what Jesus does in the gospel, it's not distant. It's not offstandish. And we need to recognize that one of the things Jesus talks about most, one of the greatest dangers he sees for us as human beings is wealth. Not because there's anything wrong with money, but because there's something wrong with us. Because we will settle for the treasures that we can gather up and enjoy for 70 years against the treasures that God is offering us in heaven. The second man, what's his thing? He's got all of these oxen. And you could say, well, isn't that property too? Sure, but it's property for the sake of work. And that's another thing that keeps us from hospitality. I'm too busy to open my home. I work a 70-hour week. I run the rat race. I've got goals and ambitions I don't have time for. We have the same time as anyone else, right? That's one of the most misleading chronological excuses we make when we say we don't have time. What we mean is we prioritize our time in a different way. And that's how it works, right? One of the reasons why we don't invite people into our home in general, let alone those who are of no benefit to us, is because we're too busy chasing the dream, working to get ahead. It's amazing to me when you look at the life of Jesus how he spends his time. It's a life of slowness, of soaking it in, of patience, that honestly, I don't find in my own blood. Like when I sit down for a long meal, even when I went and visited France a while ago and they run at a much slower pace, I just get antsy and I start to feel guilty because I'm not doing enough, right? These things are driven into our hearts by the culture that we live in, that a significant earmark of a good life is success at work. But you need to understand that that hinders what Jesus elevates here as being important to him. The last one he presents is kind of a funny excuse, isn't it? I've married a wife, so I can't come. Okay. Now, maybe the case is that she's that type of wife, and so that's what's going on. But more likely... The idea here um, is, uh, is basically one of prioritizing the family, right? Now, this is something that I think significantly we can all relate to. In fact, I meet couples very often, and they think that the ideal way to begin their marriage is to distance and to isolate. They need to just work on us, right? We just need to be by ourselves and alone and cultivate. And trust me, I've been a pastor long enough to know that that does damage because you two, whoever you are, are not enough for life. You need the community. We get bothered sometimes by that traditional part of Western weddings where the community is given a chance to voice any reason why the two should not be wed. We're offended in our independence and our autonomy that anybody thinks they have the right to determine who we should marry. But you need to see that for what it is. It's a community involvement 
in the future of this couple. A wedding used to be a recognition that the whole community, all those in attendance, were participating in the future that it is to come. We're not really wired that way, and sometimes we'll broaden the boundaries a little bit. And so we elevate the, fa- uh, the family and we say, this is where I'm going to spend my time. In fact, relationships in general, the human nature that we all share pushes us to insulation, to inwardness. I've got my people, and that's enough for me. And so maybe you move into a monastic community, or maybe you move into the suburbs and you build your fence, and the only time you leave the house is for commodified reasons, to go see a movie, to pick up groceries, right? Uh, We tend to center our lives internally around those who we share blood with. That's the problem here. We need to recognize that family and the elevation of family or the satisfaction with the community who you love and naturally benefit from goes against the grain of an eternal destiny where the table, table is wide open. But this is a challenge, I think, for us. We can recognize all those things and call them out for what they are, but the truth is you will never overcome the heart of the Pharisees here where dinner is an opportunity of self-promotion and self-advancement and to put your guests in their debt so that they would be repaid. You will never overcome that until you understand what God has done in Jesus Christ. When we read the parable that comes next, there's only two groups, right? There are those who who were invited and had silly, but too many excuses to come. And then there's the ones who are at the table. And who are they? Who are they? Read again with me. And so the master hears about this. He's angry and he tells them in verse 21, go out quickly into the streets and the lane of the city, bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And he says, okay, we've maxed that out. Everyone's at the table, but still there's more room. And then verse 23, the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges. This heavenly table that the Pharisee in the room says you'll be blessed to attend, that he's looking forward to, the entirety of the people sitting at that table are identified as the poor, the cripple, the lame, and the blind, and those who were found under bushes. Okay. That's it. The only thing that qualifies us for the kingdom of God is need. There's a short story by Flannery O'Connor, probably my favorite of all her short stories, called Revelations. And in it, a woman is in a waiting room, awaiting uh, the nurse to call her name, as many of us have probably been in those circumstances before. And she's looking around the room, and there's some, uh, <coughs> there's some black people in the room, and she's tremendously racist, but she's much more deeply offended by white trash. And she begins to pray to herself, God, thank you that I'm not like this white trash couple over here. Thank you, you know, of all of these things. And the whole time, there's this young daughter in the white trash family, maybe 13, and she's just giving this woman the evil eye. 
just the whole time, just just stern, looking at her. You know, every time the woman looks back, she's still staring at her. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of her rejoicing in the fact that she's not like these other people, this 13-year-old girl tackles her to the ground, bites her, looks her in the face and says, you are a warthog straight from hell. And suddenly the woman realizes that that word is prophetic. That that's not just the crazy ramblings of some strange teenager, but it is God's voice to her. And she's so upset. And the story finishes as she's back at her home, kind of processing this whole thing. And she's praying again to God, and she says, God, why, why would you say something like that to me? Why would you call me something like that? And she's leaning over the fence on her pig farm, and she's pondering this, and then she looks up in the sky and she has a vision. And she says, sees all the black people and all the white trash people and all the unrespectable people entering into heaven and the respectable people following behind. You see, this man's problem isn't just that he doesn't understand the people who will be sitting at the table with him are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. He doesn't understand his own sense of need. He doesn't see that the only way we get to be into God's kingdom is not by our self-effort, not by our impressive record, not because you carry a gold card, not because you've impressed the world or won at life or any of these things, but solely because of what Jesus has done. I want to draw your attention to one last word here in verse 23. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. Now, it's hard for me to wrap my head around this, but on occasion, as early as the, uh, the fifth century with Augustine, that word compel was used as justification for violence in conversion. That's not the idea here. The idea isn't compulsion in, at the point of a sword. What would it be like if you were living your life on the streets, if you were normally invisible to other people, despised, and then a servant of a wealthy household comes to you and grabs you by the hand and says, my master wants you to come over for dinner. Oh, come on, right? At the very least, you'd think they'd made a mistake. You probably think it's a trap. This idea of compulsion, right, is manifesting the heart of the host which is too good to be true. Listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, it's one of two things. Either you have excuses, you have reasons, you have distance, you have other things in your life, and basically that expresses, I don't need what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's good for you, it's fine, it's great, but it's not something that I need. Or, it may be that your need is so significant. You have no problem identifying yourself here with hedge people, right? But could it really be for you? None of us, none of us here in this room stand here, rejoice in this Savior because Jesus just topped off what was missing in our life. We come from nothing with Jesus having done everything. For those of you who are Christians, if you understand that, it changes the way you live life. 
That's why we gather every week and reflect upon the gospel because we're trying to work into us the significance of this one momentous occasion where God himself in human flesh died on your behalf and three days later rose again. But one of the ways that's going to be expressed in our lives is seeing the needs of those around us not as something to throw money at, not as something that disqualifies them of being any benefit to us, but as an opportunity to rejoice in and to reflect what we ourselves are receiving in the kingdom of God. And don't be confused here. When Jesus says when we take care of the poor, crippled, lame, and the blind that God will reward us, okay, that is in some way our self-interest. Like I said, it's, the problem here is not that we desire too much, that we want world-renowned, that we want to get ahead in our careers. It's that we desire too little. We settle for those things when God is offering something greater. But understand that that reward is only rewarding because it comes from the hand of the God we love. What we get at the end, what this reward looks like, is simply a well-done, good and faithful servant. And let's be honest, if you're not totally enraptured with the person who speaks that then it's just one of those I did all of this and all I got was a t-shirt scenarios right but if you understand that this is Jesus saying you get it you understand what I've done for you You, it's not that we repay it in this action but we do reflect it then we long for the reward that's offered here So much so that the rewards of this world that would keep us from loving the stranger, from eating with sinners, from utilizing not just our income, but our own homes and tables to meet the needs of our neighbors. Father, we forget. We forget what got our name on the guest list. We forget the significance of not just our need, but your provision in Christ Jesus. We get caught up in the desires of our heart and the idolatry that pursues success or wealth, that tries to build a little heaven on earth. pray, Lord, that we would remember that we would find so much joy and satisfaction in our invitation to the table, that it would be reflected in our own tables, that we would be so longing for our home in heaven, that we would utilize our homes to love our neighbors now, that we would see everything we have as not just a gift that you have given us to be grateful for, but that the best way to express that gratitude would be to put it to use for the sake of your kingdom. As Luke Luke tells us the words of Jesus a few chapters away from this in the Gospel of Luke, that we would use filthy mammon, unrighteous money, to make friends. 
that we would see the things you've given us as tools for love. And I pray, Lord, that our hospitality would be compelling, that we wouldn't just have an open door policy that if anyone wants to come, they could come, but that we would go out into lives, that we would see needs and that we would beg them to come with us. We would compel them to come in. We would reflect that love that changed our lives. Thank you, Lord. I pray these things in the name of Jesus who loved us, who died for us, who rose the game, uh, rose again and invited us into the family of God. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.